Let's open our Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We'll read verses 1 through 6. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Marys to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Now then, we find here that we could go on and read much more scripture, but I want to point out that, first of all, by way of introduction, that the importance of Christ's resurrection is that it proves he is the Son of God. It attests to the truth of the scriptures. It assures us of our own future resurrection when we die. It's a proof of a future judgment. It is one of the central truths of the gospel. The Bible says he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And it is the assurance of our future inheritance in heaven. It's the foundation of Christ's heavenly priesthood, because he could not be our priest in heaven had he not risen from the dead. And it gives power to our life as a Christian and how to live a Christian life, because the Bible says we're crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. So because he lives, we shall live also. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. In fact, if you leave off the resurrection, Christ's death would not mean anything. But the resurrection attests to the, the virtue and the merits of his death, and it proves that he is exactly whom he claimed to be. It is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. The greatest attested fact in history, some people that doubt the resurrection of Christ it is attested in so many ways, and we didn't have time to deal with all those ways of the appearances of Christ after his resurrection, which we will probably include many of those thoughts in our message this morning. So I wanted to narrow down the thoughts this morning to four different things. It's reality, Christ's resurrection. The reality of Christ's resurrection. And the second thing, it's declaration. And the third thing, it's verification. The thing that was declared was verified. And then the last and fourth thing was the result. So it's reality, it's declaration, verification, and result. So when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we think of the reality of it. When we read in verse 6 here in Matthew 28, it says, He is not here, for he is risen. And they were invited, come see the place where the Lord lay. So that this tomb being empty and Christ not being there shows us that it was a real resurrection, that there's no one there. And it attests to the fact that of the reality of it, of how literal it really was. The empty tomb is the proof of its reality. You know, sometimes we say we want something that we can see and know that it's real. Well, when you see that there's no one there where Jesus was put, Three days before, well, you know that something happened. And you know, uh, of course, we know it to be the resurrection of Christ. There's all other kinds of uh, ramifications and thoughts that arise. You know, when you talk about it, actually men 
some people say, well, he was stolen away. Well, if he was stolen away, who stole him away? His enemies surely would not steal him away because they wanted to prove that he's still dead. And his friends would not build all of their hopes upon a falsehood if they had stolen him away. Certainly that wouldn't hold water either, would it? So we find that there's actually no reason that uh, you would deny the fact that this tomb being empty was not a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. You know, there are also those that say, well, he arose spiritually. He didn't want to happen to his body if he just arose spiritually. If it was a different kind of a resurrection other than a physical resurrection. And of course, later on, we'll find as we study, he's proven by the actual person of Christ appearing to his disciples, it is proven in that way. In Acts chapter 1, let me read a verse of scripture. In Acts, the first chapter, if you will, uh, in verse 3 it says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that means his crucifixion, his dying on the cross, by many infallible proofs. So he he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So for forty days, he appeared to different groups of his disciples, and he showed himself alive. And so it's a very attested fact of his physical re- resurrection. One of the great, one of the greatest proofs that I like to cite is in. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, in one of his appearances, let's begin reading with verse 36, and you get on down to verse 42, is one that I really like, but Luke 24, verse 36, we'll begin reading, it says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen his spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled, or why do your thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bone as ye see me have. He wanted to prove to them that literally, physically, he had risen again from the dead. Now verse 40, it says, When he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have you any meat? Do you have any food? Look. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. I mean, certainly this is not a spirit, right? This is the resurrected Christ. You say, well, I thought he was in the glorified body. He was. And yet he proved to them that he was the same person that was crucified and buried and so the reality of his resurrection comes through. He showed them his hands and his feet. He took this raw fish and honeycombs and did eat before them. They recognized him as the same Jesus that had walked with them throughout their uh, throughout his ministry and their ministry. They're following Christ as disciples. And they recognized him in that way. The one who had taught them. They recognized his voice, I'm sure. The one that had been crucified. It, this was proven by the nail scars in his hands and his feet. So here is proof beyond any shadow of doubt. The reality of Christ's resurrection. It was a literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead 
And by the way, that's the way he ascended to heaven. A literal, physical ascending to heaven. And it says in Acts chapter 1, This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him taken away into heaven. The second point of our message, the declaration of his resurrection. How was it declared that he would rise? I want us to notice the words here in our text in Matthew 28, verse 6 again. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Look at those three words. As he said. He said he would rise again. He declared. We're talking about the declaration of his resurrection. There are at least six outstanding predictions by Jesus himself of his resurrection. And I want to read some of them for you. First of all, in John 2, verse 19, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, they they confronted him and said, Well, this temple was 46 years in the building, and will you rear it up in three days? But the Bible says, He spake of the temple of his body. He says, You destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they, they thought, of course, it was the temple that they could see adorned with all the, the adornment of the temple that stood before them. So he declares that this temple, this body that you destroyed, I'll raise it up in three days. He declared this to be true. And in Matthew 12, verse 40, he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, There shall no sign be given to you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he predicted that he would give them the sign of his death and burial and resurrection in that figure of Jonah being in the whale's belly. And that's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. And he began to show them and tell them that that's what would happen. He told them that he was going to be betrayed. He was going to be, by whom he would be betrayed. He told them that after it was all over, he would be killed and he would rise again. He would be raised again the third day. We have the declaration of Jesus Christ that he would be raised again. And then we have another one in Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, and I'll only read a part of it. It says, The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. So that's Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23. He declared that he would die. He declared that he would be betrayed, but he also declared to others that he would rise again the third day. In John chapter 10, verse 18, speaking of his life, of his death on the cross, he says, No man taketh it from me, my life. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my Father. So Jesus literally laid down his life voluntarily, willingly, but he knew that he had power to rise again. The Bible says that he is that eternal life in the book of 1 John. That eternal life. Our hands have beheld, have held, our eyes have seen, 
and it's in the book of First John, the first chapter and the first several verses. First John, and he said that, that John says we beheld that eternal life. Now, then, just think of it for a moment. How can anything hold eternal life and keep it captive? Nothing. Nothing could hold it. Death, hell, and the grave could not hold Jesus because it says He is that eternal life which our eyes have seen. And our hands have held that was with the Father. And he's going to go back to the Father. So, John 10, verse 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He could voluntarily sacrifice and give his life and give himself. But he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Then Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, it says this, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Jesus said this, And the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the chief unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. It was declared by Jesus himself, the declaration of Christ's resurrection. And then we have another one here we see in these words, as he said in Matthew 28, verse 6, we see that Jesus declared many times that he would rise again. And remember, this angel said, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And they point out the fact that Jesus had said he would rise again. So what do we have? The reality of Christ's resurrection, the declaration of it by himself, and then the verification of Christ's resurrection is the third point. There are many things that verify the resurrection but especially those ten appearances of Christ after his resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene near the tomb as consoler. He consoled her in her uh, bewilderment. He appeared to the women from the tomb in Matthew 28, verse 9 and 10. We had it in our Sunday school lesson this morning. As the embodiment of restored joy. They went on their way rejoicing. Notice, they helped held him by the feet, and worshipped him. They were happy. And then he told them to go and tell the disciples, go tell my brethren that they go before go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. So others would see Jesus. And then, of course, he appeared to the, and we didn't get this far in our study of the appearances of Christ this morning, but he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as they were talking about Jesus, and he began with Moses and all the scriptures, and expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he he expounded the scriptures about his death and his resurrection, and he said, "Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory?" And so he appeared to them as a sympathetic instructor. Then he appeared to the disciples in Luke 24, and Thomas was absent from them. We find that in verses 36 to 43. And then later on, to the disciples in John 20, verse 26 through 31, he appeared to them, including Thomas. And Thomas was there at that time. He had missed him before. And Thomas was with the disciples at that time. And, of course, you remember the story. Thomas had said, except I see the nail prints in his hands and thrust my hand in the side, I will not believe. And Jesus said to Thomas, Behold, the nail prints in my hand, and thrust your hand into my side, 
and be not faithless, but believers. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. I've heard preachers say that he thrust his hand in his eyes. He didn't have to do anything with this evidence before him. He just said, My Lord and my God. And then we find he appeared to the seven disciples in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. We find that he appeared to them beside the Sea of Galilee, and they were going fishing, trying to catch them food, and Jesus already had enough for them on the shore. The Bible says as they were doing this, Jesus stood on the shore, and then he caused them to catch a great multitude of fishes, but he had prepared for them on the shore all that. You know, it shows in the middle of all of our troubles and trials and frustration and, and toil for food and whatever we may face as human beings, Jesus is just standing on the shore already ready. And he knows all about it. He sees everything he I love that sermon. Jesus stood on the shore. He, he stood on the shore to lead them to confession. He says, children, have you any meat? They said, no, we haven't caught these things. They confessed. And then, of course, through all of that, there's a whole message in it. But then we, we find that in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, that he appeared to above 500 brethren at one time. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, he also appeared to James, his brother. And he appeared to the apostles as he ascended. In the book of uh, Acts, chapter 1, it tells that he ascended out of their sight. And let's pick up reading with verse 8. It says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, now listen, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, the one they had recognized, the one that had appeared to them, which is taken up from you, into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into He's going to come back just like he went away. He ascended into heaven, he's going to return from heaven. So we have here the verification of Christ's resurrection. And the last point in our message is the result of Christ's resurrection. The result of Christ's resurrection. What are some of the things? And there were there are numerous things that I'll point out. Uh, probably five or six of the special. First of all, the resurrection of Christ is absolute proof of his deity. Absolute proof of his deity. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David. Now listen. Made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his humanity. But verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, According to the spirit of holiness, what? By the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead declared him to be the Son of God. That's proof of his deity. The next thing we find out is justification of all believers. Imputation of God's righteousness. The death of Christ is the ground of our uh, Righteousness and the resurrection of Christ is a guarantee of our life. 
Let me read in the book of Romans chapter 4. 4 verse 25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses, and verse, the last part of verse 25, Romans 4 verse 25, and was raised again for our justification. So his resurrection is a guarantee that our sins are gone. That he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And therefore, Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because he was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, we can have peace with God. Why? Because we're now forgiven of our sins. We're now saved. We're now justified in the sight of God. And it's proven by what? His resurrection from the dead. So, imputation of God's righteousness all through the third chapter, uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, you find the word imputation, reckon, imputed, these thoughts about our righteousness and how it is obtained. There's those words that we use, believing, and our faith is counted to us for righteousness because we believe as Abraham believed, as David believed. There's many examples there in the fourth chapter. But the next thing we want to point out, it's not only absolute proof of his deity. We gave that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And it's a guarantee of our righteousness. Romans 4, verse 25. And then faith in Christ's resurrection. The third thing about the result is essential to our salvation. Did you know that it's essential to your salvation that you believe that Christ was raised from the dead? Someone says, well, I can be saved without believing all that. You cannot be saved without being, without believing the gospel, and the gospel is the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And the Bible tells us that you have to believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and you have to also believe that he rose again the third day. Faith in a dead Christ can save no one. Faith in a living Christ can save anyone. And so when you believe that, let me read it for you in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, there's your confession, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. See that? The simple plan of salvation. It's very essential that you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. And these people that go around and act as if the, you know, a part of the gospel is okay and the other part, you well, it's not absolutely necessary. Every bit of it's necessary. In fact, the deity of Christ is necessary. If he was not God, he could not save us. If he was not virgin born, he could not save us. The virgin birth is absolute necessity. His sinless life is a necessity. His sacrificial and atoning death is a necessity. His bodily resurrection is a necessity. All of it is necessary to believe. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is God's pledge of a future judgment. In the book of Acts chapter 17, let me read this for you. I could quote it to you, but let me just read it. It says, because he has appointed a day. Well, verse 30 says he's commanded all men everywhere to repent. Verse 31 says, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men 
in that he had raised him from the dead. The death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ is the absolute guarantee that God will judge men by that man whom he has ordained, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. A future judgment. He appointed a day and he appointed a judge. And that judge is the man, Christ Jesus. The last thought, number five. Christ's resurrection as a result. The fifth thing as a result. Christ's resurrection is a striking pattern and guarantee of our own resurrection. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Christ is risen from the dead. And Paul gives the argument that Christ be not risen. Your faith is vain. You're yet in your sins. Uh, all those that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. There's no hope beyond this life. And he deals with that. And then he goes on to say, but now, and he changes it. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, if you go back and study in the Old Testament the first fruits, you'll find it in Leviticus chapter 23. Let me try to find it there. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. Let's read it. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when you be come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheep of the first fruit of your harvest in, unto the priest. A sheep of the first fruits of your harvest you'll bring to the priest. And it says, And he shall wave the sheep before the Lord to be accepted for you. And on the Sabbath, more after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day. When you weigh the sheep as a lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord, and it goes on. Okay, what did this mean? This meant when they brought that sheep of the first fruit, that this was the ripe grain or the first fruits of that harvest, whatever it was, and that this was a promise that out in the field there was a whole harvest of it, just like this one. So Jesus is the first fruits. And the Bible says, afterwards, they that are Christ that is coming. So he's going to raise all who are a part of that resurrection that he started and was the first fruits of. And it's a guarantee of our resurrection and a sample of it, a specimen, a sample, a plague, example of it. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that left. The Bible says in first. Thessalonians chapter 4, let me read this for you. First Thessalonians chapter 4, without, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. This is a term that's used concerning the dead in Christ. They are asleep in Jesus. That you saw not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. That's the dead in Christ. Those that are asleep in Jesus. God is going to bring with them. Where are they now? They're with Jesus. Where are they going to be on the morning of the resurrection? They're going to be brought. And then uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first. They'll be reunited. They'll have a, a resurrected body. But right now their spirit is with God. And he's going to restore them to full-fledged, resurrected saints of God. And we will be, uh, if we're living at that time, we may go through the same process. But if we're living at that time, the dead, the living believers shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
says, So shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me go ahead and read it. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, for that you saw not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, see how important it is, and rose again, even so, just like that, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, notice that word then, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to be caught up. That's called the rats caught up. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So when Christ comes again for his own, he's coming from the heavens. He's going, going to not come back to the earth at that particular time. The dead in Christ are going to be resurrected. The trumpet will sound. And the living believers will be taken up. And we'll meet the Lord. And then tribulation is going to take place upon this earth for seven years. And after that's over, he's coming in power and great glory. And the saints of God, the dead in Christ that are with him, Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb and all that are rejoicing with Him in the heavens will come with Him in power and great, as He comes in power and great glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you read in Revelation 19 where He's coming back to this earth and He will rule and reign. And of course there's a millennial reign, a thousand year reign that's spoken of in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And then we find more than that, we find that at that particular time that he is going to reign with all of his saints. And then after this thousand years of reign, there's a lot of things that transpire and we go into the eternal state of things. But the Bible tells us that when he comes for his own, and I want to read one scripture in closing, that he's going to change our vile body. It says in Philippians 3, verse 21. Well, let's read verse 20. Our conversation is in heaven. That word there actually means citizenship. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So when he comes going to change our vile body. This body of corruption. This body of decay. This body will go back to the dust. Back to the earth. And he, he shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So that's what the Lord is going to do. The resurrection of Christ. Think of it for a moment. Everything stands or falls upon his resurrection. Salvation, hereafter, of any form or fashion, or heaven to come, or rule and reign with Christ. And Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ be not risen, your, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, those that are fallen asleep in Christ shall perish, you're left without hope. But he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that sleep. Beloved, it's absolutely very important and wonderful that we can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that 
The third day he rose again, that he appeared to the disciples. For 40 days he proved that he was risen again. Really? And then he ascended into the heavens. And then, of course, he ever liveth to make intercession for all that come unto God by whom. And you can come to God by faith and receive Christ as your Savior. And by the way, everyone here should trust Jesus as their Savior. And many have. We know that many have trusted Jesus. If you have not, you ought to this morning when we give the invitation. If you need a church home, you ought to have a church home. You ought to have a place of witness, of service, of fellowship in God's house. And we're going to invite you to come during the invitation and let God have His way in your heart and life. So we're going to ask the song leader and pianist to come. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing the invitation hymn, I believe, 375, Just As I Am. And as we sing it, will you step out and down this aisle? And I know that there's probably some that need to come this morning. Let God have His way in your heart and life as we sing.